Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, everybody. This is the first class of the new year. It is. This is the first class we've had since before Christmas. Absolutely. Since we didn't didn't have class last week. Absolutely. So we're glad all of y'all are with us today. We are. Yes. We are. We're I don't know glad. if we saw. Well, I know we saw Gary and Jen yesterday at church, um, but. It was, it was a quiet day. It was a quiet day at church. We had a lot of people watching on Facebook. Yes, I, th I think it was a combination of the cold. Oh, but was maybe it cold? even Yeah, and maybe <laughs> even more so just uh, COVID concerns. I yes. mean, we even wore our masks all day yesterday in churches. You know, so it was... Uh, we did, and we have not We've been staying been in. Them. We've been staying yeah. in now since when? Last... Wednesday. Wednesday was the last time really we ventured out except for church yesterday, which yep. we, we, we kind of have to do. So anyway, yeah, you just kind of feel like for the first time, really, there's just all these people I know who've had so COVID. So many. But they've all been mild cases and that's, that's or been the wonderful maybe thing. a little more than mild, but, you know, not dastardly, right. not nobody worried about getting, having to go to the hospital or anything for no. it, but just so much of it. So yeah. Yeah. I, I don't really want to get sick, so. I don't want you to get sick either. I you don't know, want to get sick. Yeah, yeah. So our daughter-in-law, Savannah, got it. She got it. She, she got a pretty a really bad, bad case. It's a real, with a real super sore throat, which is awful yes. if you've ever had. And something yes, like she that. did. She got both shots, and she had the booster. Yeah. Um, so I think we're everybody has she is on, that I know about. Has it, hopefully she is on the mend right now. So we know the kids. I believe in Plano go back to school on Wednesday. Oh. So. The Damewoods just checked in. Oh, they I are have on to... the. Uh, they are in the middle of the Caribbean on the. I think it's the Virgin, Virgin Cruises ship. called Scarlet Lady Ship, on their way to Cozumel. And I have been completely. <laughs> I call it Facebook envy. Yeah. And I was looking at the pictures and I was thinking, Gosh, I wish we Boy, were there. Nice. Yeah. But yeah. It, again, the COVID thing is what has. It'll be uh, interesting to talk us, with Cedas yes. and Doug about the masking on board and yes. how that real, how, how Virgin Cruises is handling that because yeah. the having to wear mask a lot on board, even some, has has kept us from doing what we enjoy doing. Do. We enjoy taking a cruise, don't we, we dear? We love taking cruises. We had one scheduled to leave on December thirtieth that we canceled. Yeah. Um, so. We'll so see. We're, we're see. ready. We're ready. <laughs> we are. We're really ready. <laughs> we're ready. So maybe, maybe, maybe by this summer. Maybe by this summer. Yeah. Or late spring even. They say that one yes, thing about spring, this new like, variant is that it's moving through so like fast. April and May. When yeah. Yeah. Before all, all the, the kids are still in school. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's the time to go anywhere. <laughs> oh, I still like going on cruises where at least there's some young people. I yeah. don't like it when it's all old people. I think it just... Has a different vibe, more fun. Yeah, remember yeah. that cruise director we talked to? One time it was a cruise to Hawaii. He said, "No, you don't want to take that cruise." We like from we California did. to Hawaii, he said there must have been seven hundred wheelchairs on the ship. He honestly for that did. He said it took so many hours just to get everybody in the wheelchairs off and. That Back on we should probably wait a while before yes, we did that one, yes. unless we had a lot of patience. And a long you all while. know about Scott's <laughs> patience. So anyway, anyway, we're so glad to be here. Glad y'all are I don't here. I want to take up too much of, of the class time. So okay. Um, well, we shall I open us up Please with prayer? Do. Please Let's do. pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this Monday, January third, in this new year, and. Um, we, we pray, as we always do, that your Holy Spirit will open these pages up for us, will really help us 
to to get in touch with Paul, to to hear Paul well and and grasp not only what his words meant uh, to Timothy, but but how uh, they have meaning for our lives as well. Um, and we do all this in the name of your Son Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Alrighty. Okay. Alrighty, so, honey, I'm going back to my station. Okay, very good. On the other side, you've been at my station there for a while. No. Well, I've been there. But we you missed haven't one been on class. We missed one class. I know, but because of being <laughs> New Year's and Christmas, it seems longer than that. Yeah, yeah. Especially that Christmas week and the weeks leading up. Man, that is a busy time of year. Wow. So here's where we are. So we actually finished chapter three of Second Timothy two weeks ago, but it's such an important piece right at the end of chapter three, and I brought a diagram around around it that I just wanted to start there and sort of see it as connected to what we're going to encounter at the beginning of chapter four, because they really are connected. And um, what what Paul is is doing, of course, is trying to lift Timothy up, encourage him, um, teach him, uh, remind him, because um, as we'll see, Paul thinks he's probably nearing the end of his life. Well, we'll see that today in today's scripture. And we may well, I don't know, we may well finish chapter 4 today, which would, which would finish up Second Timothy, because it's not a very long chapter. And then we will begin the letter to Titus, which is not very long either. It's only three chapters. And so there we go. Here's where we are. So let me get my stuff set up here again. So go back to the end of Second Timothy, chapter 3. Ah, come on. That, not you. The, my <laughs> iPad. <laughs> so um, look at verse 14. That'll get us into it. He says, this is Paul to Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. For example, his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who we met at the beginning of the letter. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now those would be the Jewish, that would be the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scrolls. There are no Christian scriptures yet, per se, right? Paul doesn't even comprehend, really, I suspect that he's writing in things which would come to be seen as and taken by the community of Christians as scripture. So he means the Jewish scrolls, the Torah, and the rest of it, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now that might surprise you, but it really shouldn't, because throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels, in Paul, throughout the New Testament, um, the point of view is that if you know how to read the Old Testament scriptures well, if you read the scrolls well, if you, if, if you read them with a discerning God-led eye, then you will comprehend Jesus. You will comprehend what God is doing in and through Jesus. And that's basically what uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that when he, this Pharisee who should know, and yet, and yet doesn't, because he's just, I guess I would call it spiritually blind. 
So um, that that's what Paul means there in verse 15. And then he says, famously really, in verse 16, this is a very well-known verse, all scripture is God-breathed, theotnust, God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And not just for our just general interest, our intellectual curiosity, no. That's not why we have these scriptures, you know. Sometimes we can sort of feel like it's that way. I'm curious about this, and I'm curious about that, and I'm curious about... No. The reason God has given us these scriptures, this Bible that you and I are reading even now, is so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have the scriptures for a purpose. Um, it, they, and, and that purpose is, purpose is a, really a very holistic view of salvation. Yes, salvation is being put right with God. Salvation is the process of being put right with God. Salvation is the process of becoming obedient to God, of living a more Christ-like life. Really, it's all, it's all wrapped up in together, and they, they can't really be pulled apart. We might, we might think we can. We might think, well, all that really matters is that, you know, I'm right with God, that Jesus saved me. And I could then go back to the party. Maybe it'd be nice if I, you know, became obedient and really loved every. But, but, but I don't really have to. No, you can't pull them apart. You just can't. The rescue is. It, it's like the cruise ship arrives at the desert island and picks you up. You are rescued. You are rescued in your present state. But becoming more. Christ-like, a more genuine disciple, more obedient, is, and I guess in my metaphor, is staying on the cruise ship. Staying on the path of the, that the cruise ship is sailing on and not, not jumping back overboard and swimming back to the desert island or something. You just, um, I think Protestants are particularly inclined to want to pull them apart. Um, salvation from... The traditional word of sanctification, becoming more, becoming holy, becoming more holy, more Christ-like. But um, the more time I spend in Scripture, the more I see that you can't pull them apart. They are inseparable. If you were in my, if you were in my class or watched my class yesterday morning at 11 o'clock, we talked about the hypostatic union of Christ, which is the inseparableness of his two natures, divine and human. Well, I think there is a hypostaticness to the inseparability of trusting and obeying. They're both part of one thing, which is being, enjoying the substance, the full substance of a life with God now and into eternity. So, um, and scripture is given to us to help us with that. So here, here's the chart I came up with. I had one last week. It was a little messier. I like this one a little bit better. It's a little bit fuzzy, 
but I think on the small screens we're all looking at it on as opposed to a giant screen like in church. This probably works okay. So Paul says, Scripture is given to us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So this shows it clear and simple. This is how I would draw it if I had drawing skills. You know, teaching, coming, showing us the path where to walk. Christ's path, God's path, God's way. I use those phrases all the time. Reproof is Scripture tells us helps us grasp that we have fallen off the path. So you read that, you know, Paul says, gosh, you know, we're to be patient and kind. And you realize, I've been anything but patient and kind for the last few days. Right? And then Scripture corrects you in that it shows you how to get back on the path and then instructs you on the way forward, the training in righteousness. Righteousness is doing the right thing really. So it's teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And if you have ever studied learning theory, you know you can look at this diagram and you can see that there's a modern day um, learning theory called OADI, Observe, Assess, Design, and Implement, that is basically the same thing because this is a very good way to understand how we learn, not just as adults, but even how children learn not to touch a hot stove. <laughs> the rebuke coming from a painful finger, maybe, and, and the correction teaching you not to touch the hot stove, and then maybe mom or dad showing you how to do what you need to do, but without, uh, without getting burned by the oven. So I don't know. It's just you really need to flag verse 16 and 17. They're, I think they're really important um, I like very much in the NIV, that in, in the first few words of verse 16, the NIV translators don't fall back on the word inspire because we use that word a lot, right, in all kinds of different settings. And they just kind of take the Greek word and literally, <laughs> literally bring them into English. God breathed. That's what Paul wrote. Theo nustos. God breathed. So, yep. That's kind of it. So it's just, for a Bible teacher, it's a pretty important place. And so I want to get back to it today. And he's giving it to Timothy because he's about to encourage Timothy to stick with it, to endure. But before we go on to chapter 4, I'm going to see if Patty or anybody has any questions, comments. Not yet, hon. Not yet. You like that diagram, Patty? I love it. I took a snapshot of it on my phone. This uh -huh. is one of the things we could discuss at Gloria's. Okay. <laughs> yes. Steve Wilson says it's like a process map. It does look like that kind of thing, right? Yep. And, and that's what these verbs do that Paul is using in 316. I think he might, he would probably draw it if that were the custom and he had the had the tools to, to do that in their day. Um, things weren't the same by any means. So, cool. So now we'll go on to chapter 4, verse 1. And it's really, it, it's really not a paragraph break here. It's a chapter break, I know. But I don't know. I think they, they we just need to, you would, Paul was, is just writing right onward from, you're given this so that, you know, every servant of God is equipped for good work. He says, in the presence of God, 
and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Okay. A charge is a responsibility. So Paul is saying to Timothy, all right, so what I'm about to tell you, Timothy, you have to bear in mind in the knowledge that Jesus is returning, that his kingdom will be fully consummated, and that we will all be judged. Because remember, in the book of Revelation, rightly so, there are two books. The first book is the book of merit, which is the life we've led. The second book is, is the book of life, and, and it is the book where the names are of those who have put their faith in Christ and will spend eternity with God. But the book of merit is, is important. We, we, we should lead a good life. We should lead a better life. We should lead a holy life. Like I just said, you can't really separate these things like we, we sometimes want to. How we, how we live matters to God. How we live matters to Jesus. How we live sh matters, it should matter to us. It matters to the people who love us. Right? So, he's just, he's just saying to Timothy, just remember, you're doing all this in light of what is to come. Christ's return, the consummation of the kingdom, the day of judgment. That's the ground on which you operate, Timothy. It's not just about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. Have the longer view, Timothy, when you consider what your life is, what your goals are, what you're about. And so he says, Timothy, in light of all of that, I'm giving you this charge, this responsibility. One, preach the word. They are, Paul's an evangelist. And more, Timothy's an evangelist. And more, but they are preaching the word. They are carrying the good news of Jesus Christ across the Mediterranean. That's what they're about. That's what they're doing. And they're building these little colonies of this new human race, born again, born again in Christ. And, and Paul's been about it for a long time now. Timothy will, has been about it for a long time himself. But Timothy is a younger man. And Timothy is going gonna, is gonna to carry on with this work. Um, and what is going to happen in the course of the coming decades is that Christianity, the number of people who pledge themselves to Christ, will grow and grow and grow. It's tiny at this point. One of the best historical sociologists of these things is a professor named Rodney Stark, who used to be at Baylor's seminary, but I don't think he is. I don't know if he was even in the seminary at Baylor. I might have just been in the Department of History, but I don't think he's there anymore. But anyway, Rodney Stark, one of the best. And he says, maybe at the, at the end of the first century, there were maybe 7,000 Christians in the empire. Because he says, they, you know, these things, they grow fast, but if you have very few that you start with, even if you, even if you grow at a fast rate, 
it takes it a while to ramp up. But of course, once it does ramp up and you keep up that growth rate, that's when it starts to explode to from 7,000 to, to two millions. But, especially, we have to remember there's absolutely no technology. No technology. Um, and on top of it, when you, when you read Paul's letters, it's clear that he was met with much resistance and um, ridicule. That's the word I was looking for, ridicule. Resistance and ridicule. Because for so many people, the good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus, just seems so wild, so outlandish. It can't really be so. And so they just ignore it, or they laugh it off, or they ridicule it. And it was, it's true in our world today. It was even much more true in their world because the Christians are so, <laughs> there's just so few of them. So he says, verse two, preach the word, Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. What's the Boy Scout, Boy Scout motto? Be prepared. How do you know that, Pat? Just know, because it's like world famous. World famous. <laughs> the Boy Scout motto, be prepared, yeah. I can remember that. I, mean, I think the, the the Boy Scout uh, salute was three fingers, right? Something so. like that, yes. Mm. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Anytime, anywhere, 24-7, 52 weeks out of the year, be prepared. To do what? To correct, right? Timothy works with Scripture to correct, to help people find and know God's way. Rebuke. Be willing to tell them when they're wrong. That's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. You know, lots of times people aren't just outright wrong. If they're just outright wrong about some fact, that's an easy thing to to correct. But when they have a more base level misunderstanding of the gospel or of Jesus. You know, I've learned to be careful and gentle because the the point is not to be right, really, though it kind of is. <laughs> the point is to encourage them, the next word, right? Right? Yes. To understand the path, to embrace the path, and to walk in God's way rather than the world's way, to see the world the way that God sees it, the way that we God wants us to see it. And it's not the same as the world's way. Um, I think sometimes people can convince themselves that they're really the same, but I, the longer I've lived and the more I'm, I'm convinced that they're further apart than p people think. They're further apart than I thought for much of my life. And um, so he says, correct, rebuke, encourage. How? With great patience. It matters with patience because the point is the, um, is the, is the convincing. Great patience. God wants people to love God, to embrace Jesus, to love others. 
God's purpose is not to give people a test and to see whether or not they can pass it. And if you can't pass it, well then, oh, gone with you. No, that isn't, that isn't what this is about. God's about reshaping our way of seeing ourselves and seeing the world. Paul writes in Romans 12, right at the beginning of Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what the will of God is, what God wants. That's, that's what that verse is about. Transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will know what God desires from us, what is good, right? So, to do that, if you're Timothy or Paul, requires that you be yourself be guided by Scripture and the Holy Spirit and requires you to engage people with patience, or as Peter would put it, with humility and gentleness. None of those are really popular words in modern culture. Humility, gentleness, patience. But that it's God's ways. It's who we, how we were created to live. So with great patience and careful instruction, that's back to the burden, the joyful burden, I guess I'll put it, that, that Paul places upon, upon teachers and preachers. Is to, is to instruct carefully and well and, and correctly and really strive to express the gospel and not fall back on what suits selfish purposes that we might be drawn to with great patience and careful instruction. And then he has a warning for Timothy. And this will sound, I suspect, pretty 2022. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Every preacher I know of wrestles with this because you know that people need to hear the good news. How do you do that? How do you get them to hear the good news? It's so tempting to try to, to tell them what they want to hear, something that they that they want to hear to meet their this I've heard this in too many too many meetings their perceived need it doesn't really matter what their perceived need is meeting their perceived need might get them in a pew but if that's all you do you haven't really done anything as a preacher or a teacher you have to do your best to convey the truth even when it's uncomfortable. Even when you say to people, oh my, yes, we are all sinners and there is something deeply wrong with us. And no, 
you can't follow your heart because your heart's going to lead you astray. It's like a malfunctioning compass in that way. Your heart has to be rebuilt. Your mind has to be renewed. There's a lot of people for whom those words are offensive because they think, well, I, well, I'm okay. Who are you to tell me no? I'm not okay. And so even 2,000 years ago, Paul is warning Timothy about people becoming attracted to, you know, new ideas and wrong ideas, like new and wrong ideas um, that are in opposition to sound Christian doctrine, sound Christian teaching, which is embedded in, in Scripture. So, you know, and, and it's part of what the great creeds carry for us. The creed, we say the Apostles' Creeds, and as we say the Nicene Creed, there's other great creeds. The Chalcedonian Creed, other great creeds, which carry this, the, the central part of, of the Christian faith. The UMC, United Methodist Church, has a statement of faith. Articles of Religion, we call them. Um, our, the, the church that we married in 1966 the, uh, or 68, the EUB, they have a statement of faith. Even Baptists have a statement of, of faith. What does that mean, even Baptists? Because Baptists always say they don't, they, they don't really pay attention to those creeds. But they do, actually, because they have their own statements of faith. Of course, there's a, there, there's a core of the Christian faith that makes the word Christian mean something. Otherwise, it can just mean whatever you want it to mean. So, Paul simply says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So, um, as culture pulls away, or the church pulls away from that's culture pulls away from classic Orthodox Christianity, the temptation that a church could fall into is simply to begin to preach what the culture wants to hear. You see? Because thinking that that will get people in the pews, I don't think historically that's the case. No. Nope. Um, because the Holy Spirit is working through all of this. So even though people have the stuff that they want to hear, if they want to hear it, let me rephrase it. Just because they want to hear it doesn't make it sound doctrine. Got it? Yes. Am I clear enough over there, Patty? I think so. I think I beat this horse enough, huh? I think so. So let's go on another verse. <laughs> and he'll say it again. They will turn their ears, these itching ears, away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now for Paul, myths are predominantly things coming out of the pagan world. Right? False stories about the way things really are. In our world, 2021, I don't really run into many people who are advocating we return to the worship of Zeus or anything like that. So in our world, it's sort of like in verse 4, they will turn their ears away from God's truth and turn aside to 
false stories about the origin of everything that doesn't even include God. See, there we go. Verse 5. But then he says to Timothy, But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Don't panic. <laughs> keep your head. If you're going to stay true, Timothy, you got to keep your head. You know? There might be a lot of things coming at you, Timothy, but keep your head in all situations. Be willing to endure hardship. Right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for the church to become more and more counter to the culture that the church resides within. Or alongside, I should probably say. It is. So endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. That is this Greek word about gospel, good news, the glad tidings that the uh, angels bring. Gospel, good news, glad tidings, evangelism. They all come from the same group, Greek word, which is a word about... Um, it's a proclamation. It's a proclaiming word. In this case, at the root of it, at the very, if you were like to boil gospel good news, glad tidings, down to one thing, what would it be? Jesus is Lord. That's the, that's, everything flows outward from that. That simple statement that Jesus is Lord. So do the work of an evangelist. He's urging Timothy. It's, endure the hardship. Put in the miles. <laughs> Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Discharge all the duties of your ministry, Timothy. Just trying to, you know, this is the older man writing to the younger man. Well, Scott. Yes. I'm just gonna, like, let's just talk about like today. Okay. I think things have changed so much in the last let's say even 10 years, go back 20 years of what, as far as we know, most people thought was okay. Okay, you're kind of in God's will if you, if you keep the, this. And in some ways we've gone to such extreme in other areas that if you even mention to somebody that you don't agree with what's happening in right. the world, Right. Um, you know, you're as we call it, you're canceled today. Right. And I think, or you're labeled as intolerant. Intolerant. Right. A racist. Whatever the term, whatever it we're talking about. And I would think that this would be particularly difficult on a minister, especially like a head minister. You know, the world is changing around you more so, it quickly, so fast. And you still are trying to totally live in God's will. You're trying to follow what Paul is telling Timothy here. You're trying wow. to embed yourself in the long history of Christian orthodoxy, stretching back well nigh unto 2,000 years. And you've right? got so many, so many that are pushing against you the other yes. direction. That's I why it, it takes guts. Really That's dark. why the old man says to the younger man, endure hardship, stick with it, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Because Paul knows that even 2,000 years ago, it would be tempting for Timothy to, well, just kind of 
go along to get along. Right. Right. Nice. Tell people what their itching ears want to hear. It is if you talk to if you talk to preachers, and and pastors, um, they'll tell you that that is exactly. That's exactly how it is. And even at St. Andrew, we're not immune to any of this. The United Methodist Church is having all of these discussions. Well, not so much right now because, you know, everything's been on hold from COVID for so long. But we're having so many talks and to get um, uh, yeah. So I see Steve. Uh, first of all, I see Bob. This is helpful, Bob. Well, everybody can see it, Bob. You've, yeah, Scout <laughs> Promise, honor God and country, help others, obey the Scout law. These are all things I knew at one time. Yeah, I was in scouting for a while. Steve Wilson writes Christian-ish. You see, Christian-ish is, is this word. It's a very Wesleyan idea because Wesley himself said he went from being an almost Christian to a Christian. And when he said he was an almost Christian, what he meant was that he had the mental structure. He got an A, could get an A on all the tests, but it really hadn't affected how he lived. And all he knew was that he could identify a time when he went from being an almost Christian to a Christian. And at St. Andrew, we used, have used the word Christianist to talk about that because I certainly can identify a time when I went from being Christianish to being Christian. Even then, we're humble about it, right? Because I could envisage a few times in my life when I would have said the same thing. It's a little bit like Billy Graham. If you read his biography, he's got like three conversion stories or something in the, over the course of his life. So aren't we glad that all of that stuff is actually left up to Jesus? But yeah, thank you, Steve. And, and why is Paul writing all of this to Timothy? With such words of encouragement and warning, and he said, look at verse 6. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Offering to whom? To God. Well, he's lived, the, he's lived this firsthand. Like he's he lived said, it firsthand. He's gone in, got beat up by Jews every city, Everywhere every he's he been, that long list in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 of, of what he's been through. And Timothy has experienced much of that himself. But now Paul is near the end. I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. He grasps that he really doesn't, he isn't going to be on this earth much longer. Simple as that. And then famously again, another famous verse, if you're into famous verses, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the wraith race. Both of these, Paul loved athletic metaphors, just like Robert Hasley. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, that faith is what? It, it You couldn't really say that he's kept the Christian faith because that is only being formed. We're just at the very beginnings of the formation of what, of what would become the Christian faith. I have kept the faith. I have kept my trust in Christ. 
I have kept faithful to the vocation that God has given me, Paul would say. I'm, I, I know he would say that. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith through it all, through all the beatings and the shipwrecks and the stonings and being left for dead and the rest of it that he enumerates in 2 Corinthians 11. He, he has stayed faithful to it all. And he wants Timothy to stay faithful to it all. And you know what? He wants you and me to stay faithful to it all. He wants us to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith. And see, for us, here in the year 2022, <laughs> second time I've gotten to say that, <laughs> in the year 2022, we do, the word faith for us can sometimes mean the Christian faith, the, the body of truth that we proclaim to the world. Right? Um, so, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In verse 8, Now there is in store for me, Paul writes, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So, which is all those who have their faith in Christ. I don't think you can have faith in Christ and not long for his reappearing. Um, so, this last verse gets us into the topic of rewards. And some Christians get uncomfortable with that. Um, there are other places we could we could look at about rewards, but let's just talk about it for a minute because there, the word is used in different ways. There are rewards like, you, you know, there's a reward to catch a bank robber or a mother's going to give her kids, you know, a buck if they clean their room. Well, those are really just payments, right? Those are just payments for something. But there is a, a reward, a different kind of reward in, let's say you are an immigrant to the United States. There's a different kind of reward for learning to speak English because it will ease your way into American society and the way for your children and your family into American society. And it that reward isn't really a payment. It is, it is, it is the the reward. If you want to use it that way, is in the life lived. Sometimes we'll say things like, you know, um, hard work is its own reward. That's the same kind of idea. So all Paul is saying when he uses this reward reward language is that when you come to faith in Christ and you live in God's way, it carries its own reward. And just as the kingdom of God will one day be fully manifest, so will one day that reward will be fully manifest. This crown of righteousness is the way he talks about it. It's obviously not a literal crown, 
but it, it is the culmination of a life well lived. And it is its own reward, but it also pleases God. Which is a good thing. I mean, I want to please God. I Again, I, I think if you've put your trust in Jesus and you love Jesus, you want to please Jesus. I don't see how it could be really any other way. You love Jesus, but you want to displease him? I'm married to Patty. I love my wife. I want to please her. Of course I do. <laughs> you know, it's 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 how it is. So ditto, honey. Ditto. You like that? You yeah. like how I worked that in there, Patty? I loved it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Susan Goff asks. Hauser. Yeah, Susan Hauser asks. I didn't have my glasses on. I only saw the <laughs> Sorry, first two Susan. Names. Yeah. So, yeah, Susan. So it's it's like it's like a, it's like a blessing. But it's intrinsic to the work done. That's the thing. Right? That the life lived is the reward and is inexorably bound up with our salvation and our righteousness. I guess that's the idea I would like to for y'all to consider that. Um, because I really do think that is that is that is how Paul sees it. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Now what is that saying about Paul? It's saying that he is confident that he really has done as much as he is capable of doing of being faithful to God, faithful to Jesus, having done a good job, having worked hard, having endured the hardship, and all the rest of it. He really has persevered. And that God knows this. And he can see. I think Paul, in his, as he nears the end of his life, can see and, and the... what God has in store for him. And is it he only speaking of himself? No. He, in, case, in case you would think he's only talking about himself, he says, no, it's everyone who have longed for Jesus' appearing. Again, if you have faith in Christ and you love Jesus, how could you not long for his appearing? I think if, if we don't long for his appearing, it's only because we've gotten too comfortable in our own lives. And we, we fail to grasp that with Jesus' appearing comes the end of suffering and grief and mourning and tears and death. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. And if we just remind ourselves of that, we'll come, we'll, we'll slap ourselves figuratively back in the face. And of course, of course we long for Jesus' appearing. Of course we do. So, anyway, anything more there, Patty? No. No, that's it, hon. Okay. 
All right, so now Paul is going to switch gears. And he's going to get a little bit, I guess the word will be, he's going to get a little scattered. Is that a bad word? I don't know. <laughs> but it's going to kind of, kind of come at us from all directions. Lots of people and places. And, and we'll go through these. And I have a map. And I'm going to show you where all the places are. Okay? Great. He says, do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. Right? Timothy is Paul's right-hand dude. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, Demas is a name we know from Colossians and Philemon, I think. And was so what the story behind this we don't really know but it seems to be a story where demas is part of this has drifted away been lured back by the world i don't know and what would we pray for that demas would return we could pray that demas did return to the fold that he did return to 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 christ and 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 to god's way but for right now when paul is penning this letter which he's probably writing from Rome, given what we read in chapter 1, verse 17. Um, he, has just, he has run off, and he's gone to Thessalonica, and Paul needs some help, and he asked Timothy to come and help him. So here's Thessalonica. Whoop, okay, on we go. From the circle to the map. So... If you look in the center of your map, the downward pointing arrow to Thessalonica in Macedonia. Yes. Okay, that's where it is, right there on the coastline. You could visit that city today. There, there's the ruins of ancient Thessalonica are being dug up in the center of town this very day, up there in Macedonia. So I'm going to leave the map up while we read on, and we'll spot these places. Now, so much for Demas. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. So, this Titus, we, 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 we meet elsewhere, not in the book of Acts, but other places, and we're about to begin a, a letter from Paul to Titus. Presumably what's going on is that Crescens and Titus are both going on to spread the good news, to help the churches, to create new churches, to do what Paul did. And Crescens is going to go to Galatia. So if you look at the right-hand side of your map as you're looking at it, you can see the arrow pointing to Galatia. Yes. That's a region. And then if you look at the arrow at the very top of your map, toward the left-hand side, you'll see the arrows pointing to Dalmatia. That's a region. And sort of like where Yugoslavia used to be and Albania is and that sort of thing. That clear? Very. Okay, Patty, you I got to tell me. Yep. Okay, so they 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 both headed out, which is part of the reason I think that Paul needs needs Help. Timothy, yep. right? Because Crescens is gone; he's gone to work in Galatia. Titus, Titus, he's gone to work in Dalmatia, and then he says in verse eleven, "Only Luke is with me." Boom! Wow. Okay, who's this Luke? Well, this is Luke who did travel with Paul, and who would some years later, compile a story of Jesus and the early church because the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are two volumes of a single written work. Wow. Okay? Wow. 
They are. So I'm, I realize I'm using hand signals and nobody can see them. So, so do, yeah. do we feel that like, so when Luke, Luke writes his gospel uh-huh. and um, we don't, we don't really know if Luke ever knew Jesus when he was alive. Most of what he got had to come from Paul, right? Most of his From knowledge. Paul and others, because he says, he says at the beginning of his gospel that he has gone through, because he's writing it for somebody named Theophilus, probably, com- probably I don't know, commissioned to do it. And, and so he says he's like, he has really gone around and done his homework. So he's, there's more than what he experienced with Paul, but because Paul didn't really walk with Jesus right, either, right? right? Right, So he has gone around and collected, I don't know what, pretty clearly... Well, I'm with those who think he has. Luke will end up writing his gospel with access to Mark and other things, other materials. And is this the Mark when he says, "Get Mark"? This is the Mark that will. That is John Mark. Okay. That is John Mark. So he says. um, So so Paul says only Luke is with me. That is the Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Which is a substantial portion of the New Testament, right. and he's not Jewish; he's Gentile. Okay, and his gospel is explicit about lifting up Jesus as the Savior of the world, not just the Jewish Messiah, but the Savior of the world. Jesus's genealogy and Luke goes all the way back to Adam, before there is any Abraham or Israel or anything. So he says, "Only Luke is with me." And then he says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Well, that's great because early on in Paul's ministry, he and John Mark part, uh, 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 part ways. They part ways. Thank you, Patty. Yes. They parted ways, right? John Mark, got he was on a journey and got dropped. <laughs> Set packing is how I, I think it is. And the... The tradition is that John Mark ends up attaching himself to Peter and ends up in Rome with Peter and that Mark's gospel is really, what is it really? It's Peter's testimony. That what you get when you read Mark is you get Peter's testimony probably delivered over and over and over again. And John Mark writes it down. And I think that Richard Balkum makes a tremendously powerful case for that um, being the case. And um, it's changed the way I read Mark's gospel. And when you get to the story of Peter's denial of Christ in Mark's gospel and you realize that this is Peter's own testimony, wow, wow. 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 So anyway, that is John Mark, otherwise just known as Mark. I don't think anybody disputes that. So he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus on to Ephesus. So let's go back to the map. So now you see how there's two arrows that are parallel next to each other. Yes. The, the top one is pointing to Ephesus on the western coast of... Right. Southwestern coast of Turkey. Asia Minor, it was then. Okay, so that's where he is. We, he has sent Tychicus, who we meet elsewhere in Paul's letters. 
why do we meet these people over and over? Because there's this group of Christians who are leading the way and traveling here and there, spreading the gospel, doing the work, starting up churches, carrying letters. That's why. That That's what's happening. That's why you keep encountering names in different letters of Paul. Because it all kind of swirls around Paul. But then they're all out doing their own thing too. Like Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Tychicus has gone back to Ephesus. And then in verse 13, Paul says, When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. So find the Ephesus arrow and look northward. And you'll find a little short arrow pointing to Troas, which is very near ancient Troy on the northwestern yes. coast. Yep. Okay? So I hope this is, I hope Steve Wilson is liking all of this. <laughs> a map with many, many arrows. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a lot of area to cover. I mean, we have to realize all these guys are walking. Yeah, in it's, not like it's not like they're hopping the train. What no. they can do is. To move around, you can, if it's the right time of year, you can you can book passage on a boat or ship to help you get from one place on the coast to another place on, on the coast. But look what he says. So, first of all, he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Tells you one thing, Paul does not have many possessions, right? Yes. So at some point, he left a cloak with a dude <laughs> Troas, and now and now. Um, but and more importantly, and my scrolls. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Patty. Oh, very good. Yeah. And my scrolls. That would probably be more valuable to him, you would think, right? And my scrolls, especially the parchments. Okay. So what can he mean by that? Because there's there, there's two little different words here being used here. Now I'm with those who think that by scrolls, he is referring to the. Um, particularly the Old Testament, some of the Hebrew scriptures. But I think the fact that he says, and my scrolls, especially the parchments, means that he has his own collection of writings for his own use. Now, so they might consist of what? They might consist of copies of letters that he has sent onward. They might consist of writings about Jesus. Because I'm certainly with those, most most people are, that there that there's a body of of recollections about Jesus that that were used by the gospel writers. Okay, um, and does Paul have some of that? Yeah, I think maybe. Is it possible that Paul has a copy of Mark's gospel? Yes, possible. Most scholars would say Mark was written in the early 60s. Could he have a copy of what Mark wrote? I think he could. Could he have an early version of what Mark wrote? I think he could. Do we know? No, we don't. <laughs> but clearly, it's important. It's like it, it must be like his own his some of his own library or something that he wants 
um, Timothy to bring, right, Patty, don't you think? Yes, yeah. And so he wants this cloak, and he, more importantly, he wants the scrolls, the parchments, the books. So let me just explain one thing about the books. In a lot of ways, Christians really invented the modern-day book. Early in the first century and b before, writings were put down on long pieces of papyrus or parchment. Parchment is an animal skin that, that's been shaved real thin uh, and, and then rolled up to make what you and I know of as a scroll. Well, they're pretty darn inefficient, okay? And they're, they're heavy and you can't put a lot on them and keep them practical. And so what the Christians started doing was they started writing on pieces of papyrus or pieces of parchment, kind of like notebook paper, okay? And where they could write on the front and the back and then they would be bound some way and you'd end up with something that sort of looks like a modern-day book. Like, well, you know what a book like. I don't want really to have to grab one here, do I? No, no, I think they all know. I think they all know. <laughs> I'm a teacher. I show stuff. I love show and tell. I love show and tell. Oh, well, that a, was called... I behind you called Restart. Oh, oh and, there's oh, a book for us. Jesus expects yes, of you. very good. Yeah. So, so these were... One of these books was called a Codex. And they were, it isn't that the Christians invented it. There are a few, I'll use a, a simple plural, the a, a codexes before the first century or getting close to it. But it's Christians who popularized the codex because it made it very easy for the Christians to carry their sacred writings. You see? And so from that was born this whole idea about how you'd create a book. And, men, and the earliest manus Christian manuscripts we have come out of uh, these codexes. And some of the big ones, there's a Codex Vaticanus, a Codex Sinaiticus. There's all these codexes which are, have been given names, these big copies of what you and I would call the Bible. So there we go, Codex. So so. Paul wants all this stuff. He wants a cloak. He wants his library brought to him, whatever's in it. It's exciting to think about what might be in it. We don't know. And then he turns to Alexander, the metal worker, the copper worker. It says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. There is an Alexander in Ephesus who opposed Paul and who is part of the story in Acts 19. Is that the person that Paul has in mind? Maybe. Probably. But you can't be sure because Alexander was a very common name. Had been a common name since the time of Alexander the Great. So you can't be sure. But yeah, maybe this is Alexander of Ephesus who opposed Paul. But we'll, we'll see. Well, I don't, we won't see, actually. <laughs> we just don't know. Verse 14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. 
The Lord will repay him for what he has done, and you too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. All of, lead, all of which leads you to think that, yeah, this is probably that guy, that opponent in Ephesus, explicitly told in the, in the book of Acts. So then Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. I think this is probably referring to the first defense that Paul mounts after the end of the book of Acts, which is the story of which is not recorded for us. And not surprisingly, people get scared. And they it's kind of like the cross, right? All the men bailed out on Jesus except for the teenager named John. It was all the women who stayed because the Romans didn't view them as any threat. So Paul felt abandoned um, at his first defense. And then he says, may it not be held against them. It's a very, very Christian, mature way to see it. Verse 17, But the Lord stood by my side, Paul said, and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Because if he wrote, as I, you know, if he wrote this letter, Paul was not executed at the end of Acts. He was released and then went on to do some more work, and now he is about to die from either natural causes or martyred, as the church tradition is. And the lion's mouth is really just metaphorical, um, uh, maybe a good metaphorical way to refer to Rome, because um, he is a Roman citizen, and so Roman citizens were not like fed to the animals in the Colosseum, as some people were. Paul was a Roman citizen, and if a Roman citizen was ex had to be executed, it was done with a sword, neat and clean. And then he goes on in verse 18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul can taste it. In Philippians, written long before this, he says, I'm ready to go be with Christ. At that time, he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. We don't face death like the non-Christians do. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to the heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So is the rescue that Paul is talking about, verse 18, actually mean that Paul won't face any hardships? Does it mean he won't face any sufferings? And does it mean that he won't die at the hands of an executioner? No, that's not what he's talking about. He won't be separated from God. His salvation can't be wrested from him by Rome or anyone else or any evil attack. God's going to bring Paul home, just as God is going to bring each of us home. Just as God is going to bring each of us home. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he wraps it up this way. Verse 19, greet Priscilla and Aquila. There we go, those two people. 
meet them all the time. First time in Acts 18, we meet them. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus, who was the city treasurer in Corinth, stayed in Corinth. Back to my map. Corinth is about in the center of your map, a little shot arrow pointing to Corinth on that nearly an island that's joined by the sliverest of land to, to Upper Greece. That nearly an island is called the Peloponnese and Corinth is right there on that sliver of land, the isthmus, which connects the two. That's where Erastus is. And then Paul says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. So that is the parallel arrow underneath the arrow pointing to Ephesus. Gotcha. Yep. He says to Timothy, do your best to get here before winter. Winter is not a good time to travel around the Mediterranean. And then Paul says, Eubulus greets you. And so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. All these people whose names we have, they're all Christians doing, doing God's work, doing ministry, evangelizing, caring, serving, shaping these communities. Pudens, Linus, Claudia, Erastus, Priscilla, Aquila, Trophimus, and all the ones in the earlier paragraph. Go to Romans 16. Look at all the names of all the people rolling off of Paul's pen. Just one after another, after another, after another. It's great that those names are, are preserved for us. It's, it honors them. And then he closes this letter by saying, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. And the NIV quite rightly does it because that final U is plural. The Lord be with your spirit. The grace be with you all. And he finishes this letter to Timothy. So um, we've now looked at 1 Timothy and we've looked at 2 Timothy. Two letters, personal letters, pastoral letters from Paul to this younger friend and companion and associate and when we come back next week we will begin his letter to another younger man named Titus who is also engaged in Paul's work and um, there are three chapters to Titus when we finish that we'll start something else I don't know what yet you know I've had a I've had a suggestion but I'm going to talk with you about it first. Oh, okay. 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 So anyway, friends, that's, there we go. It's a great letter. fix that just a little bit? Fix it just a little bit. Yeah, otherwise. There we go. My head looks so big. <laughs> Compared <laughs> to you. Okay. Well, come over this way, baby. So, you know, my brain is going like in all these weird, you know, um, Yes. Little spaghetti things. <laughs> yes. I don't know if y'all remember. Where was, was spaghetti taking you? Somebody, you know, came to our church one time. No, that and, was Robert Hasley. Well, he talked about a book, though, that, that there was. The Waffles right? and the yes, Spaghetti. Yes, that men are more like waffles, and they could go from, like, one little square to the next little square, where women were more like linguine, like, here and there. As soon as I and saw that And that is so true, I have yes. to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> half the time, I'm going so fast, and he says, I, I, 
I'm sorry. Where are you going? Where are I'm you, definitely where did you a come waffle. From? I'm a waffle all the way. <laughs> that that just touched me when it came on little Linus because of again how my brain works immediately. Charles Schultz, the writer of Peanuts, strong Christian. He names the little baby guy, the little boy, you know, with the little blankie, Linus. And Linus is the one who tells Charlie Brown when Charlie Brown's freaking out about the tree what the real meaning of Christmas is. And I wonder if he got Linus from here. This is where he got the know. name from. I don't know. It's don't been know. a name used in different places. But And guess what? We have a sister-in-law sister named what? Claudia. Claudia, yes. also. Yes. There we go. Yeah, and she's an angel. However, I don't have a, rel a relative named Pudens. I'm glad. <laughs> At least that we know of. At least that we know yes, of. Yes, I am on Ancestry. Maybe I'll find something yeah. about your past. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for being with us yeah. today. Um, Always. Let's just, let's just close in prayers. We close out this first Monday in January. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this time together that we can gather and study your scripture together, Lord. We could hopefully see it better each and every time that we go through scripture, Lord, you know, and see truly all of its richness. We pray, God, that you would hold this group together, God, for another year, many more years. And we just pray, God, for each person here with us today, their friends and their family, Lord. We pray that you would watch over each one of us, God. Keep us healthy, Lord. Help to keep us safe. And we pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make good decisions every day, big and small things, Lord, so that we can become more Christ-like. We love you, Lord. We pray, God, that you would continue just to watch over this world right now, so very ill with COVID. We pray, God, for your healing hand to be on us and on those around us and, Lord, truly, this entire world. We pray for a peaceful 2022. All these things, Lord, we lift up to you, and we pray them all in the name of your risen Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, Hi, everybody. Friends. We'll be back on the air tomorrow, tomorrow at noon. John, the Good Shepherd, oh. Chapter 10, John. Wow. Yes. Two I am statements tomorrow in one chapter. Wow. Wow. I don't know if, I don't know if we'll get to all two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Adios, everybody. See you tomorrow at noon, maybe. <laughs>